All right. So, in in recent months, I discovered a cell phone app, and this cell phone app has gained so much popularity. This app is called Face App. Anyone use that? No. Come on. These guys must have used it, right? Okay. Though recently, it was discovered that such app might cause a certain privacy issue, but its function was nevertheless very amazing. The most popular function of this app is its ability to turn you into a younger mode. And yes, this is me looking like 20 years old. And also into an older version. And yeah, this is me looking, I don't know how, how old is this. But this is amazing, right? This app is amazing. But later, I discovered that there is an even greater function with this app. This function is by using this app, you can determine whether you are in midlife crisis or not. You see in this app, say you're young, like if you are in your teenage, your younger version will, look, will, will not look too different than your actual picture if you're young. Okay? I have a niece who is eight years old. And when I use her picture to generate a younger version, the difference is really small. Like you can't really tell. But then if you're old, say you are... Forget it, okay? I'm not going to give a number. <laughs> uh, so you're old, okay? Your older version also won't look too different than your actual picture. But if you're not young, and you're not old either, say you're in your midlife, then your actual picture will look very different to your younger version or your older version, just like this guy. So, if you are using this app and you find significant difference between your actual picture and both your younger and older versions, then beware, you are experiencing midlife crisis. The technical term midlife crisis was first used by a Canadian psychologist in about 50 years old. So, this term is as old as VCBC. Midlife crisis primarily happens to people between 45 to maybe 60 years old, which includes me, of course. This psychological phenomenon is more common in the, in the Western world than in the more traditional Eastern world. However, this phenomenon is getting more widespread in the East as well. Unfortunately, the society might have stereotyped people who are going through midlife crisis. First, when we mention midlife crisis, we typically think of a middle-aged man, maybe overweight, with thinner hair, standing beside a bright-colored exotic sports car. But that's just stereotyping. Midlife crisis can happen to both men and women, and its manifestations are more psychological than physical. But of course, I'm not going to do a midlife crisis seminar today, and I'm no expert in this. I'll leave it to I don't know, Jack, maybe, 
to do it. But today's sermon topic is it's midlife crisis of a church. Does church also have midlife crisis? Well, we understand that we as human beings have a midlife because our life is finite. And thus, it has an end point. So normally, when we reach 40 to maybe 50, 60 years old, we are considered to be middle age. And at this very point, midlife crisis may happen. But church is a corporate being. Rather than an individual being, human being, with a set limit years of life. So technically, if a church can sustain its existence generations after generations, there should not be an end point of its life. Without an end, there is no midpoint as well. But realistically, churches are made up of people. And its characteristics inevitably reflect its people's characteristics. In history, countless churches have ceased to exist. But interestingly, before these churches come to an end of their lives, there might be middle, midlife crisis symptoms that we can identify. And with appropriate corrective measures, we might have a chance to avoid such fate. BCBC has been around for 50 years, and it is no better time than now to re-examine our spiritual condition to see if we are demonstrating any midlife crisis symptoms. Today I'm going to base my sermon on a few passages from the book of Revelation. In chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, Jesus gave messages to seven churches. These messages contain Jesus' assessment on each church, their strengths, their weaknesses, and what they have to do to be able to continue to be good witness of Jesus. Many of these seven churches have demonstrated various midlife crisis symptoms. If they do not take appropriate corrective measures, they will be heading to a disastrous end. Today I'm going to focus on three of the seven churches. They are the first one, the fourth one, and the seventh church. So I'll talk about the first, the middle, and the, the last ones. The first church is the church in Ephesus. The fourth one is the church in Thyatira. And the last one is the church in Laodicea. The respective midlife crisis symptoms are First, the first one, they have forsaken their love. The second, they have forfeited their stand. And, and the third one, the last one, they have lost their use. Now, now let me read to you the passage of the first church, the church in Ephesus. In Revelation chapter 2, 1 to 5, and it goes like this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, There are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. 
If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In the book of Revelation, the first church addressed by Jesus, the Ephesian church, has a midlife crisis. If they continue this road without changing their path, they will head to destruction. Their main symptom is that they, have, they are lacking love. However, it is not the case that the Ephesian church has always been lacking love. Jesus described that they have forsaken their first love. In other words, the Ephesian church was not always like this. They started off as a loving church. But as time goes on, many things that have happened along the way, the church has changed. From a loving church originally to a church that has forsaken their first love. And this does resemble some similarity of typical midlife crisis symptoms. One of the most common manifestations of midlife crisis is becoming indifferent or desensitized. We have lost passion, enthusiasm, or worse, we have lost love. We become rigid, legalistic, or worse, dehumanized. We become more like a rigid system, a robot. The biggest issue here is not about lack of flexibility. The biggest issue of rigidity is lack of love. When a person lacks love, the Bible likes to use the word legalistic to describe him or her. Being legalistic is anti-grace. When that happens in a church community, we will see a growing number of conflicts, complaints, or even divisions. The passage today says that the church in Ephesus has forsaken their first love. So obviously, they, like many other churches, were a loving church to start with. They used to be a loving church. But as time goes by, things change. For whatever reasons, they have forsaken their first love. They were not born without love. But somewhere along the line, they dropped it. Also, we need to pay attention on the word forsaken. The word follows the subject you, meaning the church in Ephesus. The point here is that it is not that the love left them, but that they have forsaken love. The problem is with the church or the people that make up the church. Not its surrounding, not its tradition, but the word you. They cannot blame others but themselves. But we may ask, what makes a loving church to eventually forsake their love? Why, after a period of, of time, the church once characterized by love and grace has become indifferent, rigid, or legalistic? What are the causes for such midlife crisis symptoms? Well, the ancient city of Ephesus was a big metropolitan in the Roman Empire. Its most distinctive feature was its religious fanaticism. Gods and idols were everywhere. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, was located in Ephesus. 
Also, imperial worship, like worship to the king, was predominant in the culture. And then magic, sorceries, superstitions were widespread. That's the city of Ephesus. For the church in Ephesus, it was a big, well-established church at that time. Many churches around the area were planted by the Ephesian church. With this background, we can deduce the reason why the Ephesian church has forsaken their first love. First, in a community full of gods and idols, the church of Ephesus could have developed a strong mindset of exclusivism. Maybe the Ephesian church were too adamant against the prevailing culture and the society's value, and eventually against the people in Ephesus. Hostility was developed between them both ways. And as they try to stand firm, they have also hardened their hearts. Second, after being established for a few decades, as the Ephesian church has grown in size, its structure probably has become more complex and rigid. And slowly, as structure gets more complex and church polity more uh, rigid, they might, find, they might find that structure has displaced affection and polity has superseded relationships. And because of such, Jesus pointed out that the church of Ephesus has found itself in a midlife crisis as they have forsaken their first love. Well, in all fairness, the the church in Ephesus is not without strength. Jesus complimented them that they have persevered and have endured hardships for my, for Jesus' name's sake, and have not grown weary. You know, they they are hard-working people with all willingness to serve. Also, they possess good Bible knowledge as they have tested those who claim to be apostles but, but are not, and have found them false. So they're good. They were very good with their brains and their hands. But that doesn't mean that their hearts were presentable in front of Jesus. The more you know, and the harder you serve, though good in themselves, can drive us to be performance-driven. And it might prompt us to judge one another based on performance. For us today at VCBC, do we see such symptoms in us? After 50 years of history, where are we heading? Are we taking a path that we are forsaking our first love? Are we still a loving church that we treat one another with grace? Or have we become rigid and legalistic that we always try to do things right but have forsaken doing the right thing? Where do any church showing such symptoms go from here? Graciously, Jesus prescribed a way out. He said, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. There are three corrective actions here, including first, remember, second, repent, 
And third, do the things you did at first. That's how we can resolve this midlife crisis. Remember is the brain action that leads to repent, which is a heart action. But it doesn't stop there. Your heart action will then lead to your physical actions of doing the things you did at first, which is love. Today, has VCBC become like the efficient church? After a considerable amount of time in history, we have to be vigilant that we are not becoming desensitized, loveless, and graceless. How does love manifest itself in our interaction with one another? Has our structure displaced affection? Our polity superseded relationships? It's in this pivotal point of our history. Let's remember, repent, and do things out of love. That's what Jesus asked us to do. And this is the only way to overcome this midlife crisis. Okay, the second church in Revelation that we are going to look at is the fourth church on the list, the church in Thyatira. Let's take a look first what Jesus has to say about this church. In chapter 2, Verse 18 to 20. It goes, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnishing bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of the food sacrificed to idols. The church in Thyatira is quite the opposite to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a metropolitan. Thyatira was the least important city among the seven. People in Thyatira including Christians there, were primarily hard laborers. In that period, if workers wanted to have security in their job, then they would have to join a trade guild or trade union. The issues for Christians was that each union had its own god. One union can worship the goddess of Diana, or other could worship Hercules or Mercury. So Christian workers face tensions every day between the job and the faith. As I said earlier, the church in Thyatira is quite the opposite to the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus might have been too adamant against the culture, thus forsaking their love in the process. The church in Thyatira, however, might have been too lenient, too embracing to the prevailing culture, and thus eventually forfeited the stand that they were supposed to maintain in truth. If the church in Ephesus had maintained the truth but forsaken love, then the church in Thyatira had maintained the love but forsaken the truth. Jesus' message to this church it's like this. Jesus started, again, recognizing their deeds, their love, their faith, 
the service and perseverance, and that they are now doing more than they did at first. That's the strength. See, that they had what the church in Ephesus did not. But then, the church in Thyatira has these issues that they tolerate. The woman Jezebel, which was just a symbolic name, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Churches nowadays, like this one, like the ones in the past, face great temptation to make compromises of biblical truth. This is even more so in our postmodern society, when many believe that truth is no longer absolute, but relative. Your truth is not necessarily true to me. You can have one set of truth, and I can have a totally different set of truth. In fact, postmodern world believes in only one absolute truth, that there is no absolute truth. And as illogical as it is, many people actually believe in it. This posed a great challenge to churches nowadays. As in this environment, a midlife crisis manifests. That's the, the identity crisis. Psychologists warn that as people entering midlife, we might start to question some of the values or stance that we have always maintained. Maybe because our desire to seek others' approval have increased. Or our self-esteem or confidence becomes lower at this stage. We might be more willing in yielding in areas that we used to have strong stand. We might become more afraid to confront. So we start to be more tolerant. If this identity crisis happens to a church, it might start to make compromise to certain standpoints that we use to, man- to maintain. This change can happen as time passes, as leadership changes, or more so as pressure by the prevailing culture. Thyatira was in such a situation. In order not to be excluded by different trade unions, in order not to trade off job security, Christians, in the church of Thyatira, made compromises on their faith in order to gain approval or acceptance from the society. Now take note of the word tolerate in verse 20. This word, in fact, has a stronger meaning than tolerate. I mean, the original um, Greek has a stronger meaning. More like condone or turn a blind eye. It means accepting or allowing something that you do not believe is right. If you look at the society that we are in, we might have noticed that tolerance has become one of our society's core values. Make no mistake, tolerance in most cases is a very noble thing. Tolerance is the core basis of multiculturalism. And because of such core values in Canadian society, we, well, a lot of us, we're immigrants, we are able to enjoy security, peace, respect, equal opportunities, while at the same time preserving our own traditions and languages. However, tolerance should have its own limit and boundary. 
such boundary sets an objective, an absolute standard for everyone to follow. If tolerance means accepting everything and anything without boundary, then it is no longer tolerance, but condoning. There is a key difference between the two. Tolerance means acceptance that operates within a set of objective and absolute standards. Standards must be absolute, meaning same for everyone. If standards are relative, then they are not standards at all. If standards can be relative, changes as you like, then it has become condoning. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, that love always protects, meaning tolerates. That's the word tolerates. Love always tolerates. But at the same time, in this previous verse to this one, Paul also said that love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. But unfortunately, the, the tolerance in our society is becoming more like condoning. Because we no longer take absolute standards seriously. And in such situation, what, do, what should a church do? Jesus said to the church of Thyatira, Only hold on to what you have until I come. What Jesus means here is for the church to stand firm in what God has revealed to us as truth. Biblical truth is revealed by God himself and it reflects his characters. Allowing truth to be compromised means that we allow God's characters to be compromised. And in this case, the God we are testifying to the society will no longer be the actual God himself if we compromise the truth. As we are entering into the second half of our first century, we at BCBC need to take an even stronger and firmer stand as we are defending not only what we believe, but also how we present our God to the society. And finally, let's take a look at the final church on the list, Church 7, the Church of Laodicea. Jesus' address to this church can be found in Revelation chapter 3, and I'm going to read to you verse 14 to 17. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful, and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither good nor hot, neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. If compared to the churches of Ephesus and Thyatira, the church of Laodicea was in much better environment, but faced with much greater crisis. It was in much better environment because through Jesus' message to this church, there was no mention of any false teachers or pressure from the society, from the local authorities. No. In fact, this is the only church among the seven 
that there was no mention of any external threat at all. But although in such peaceful environment, the church of Laodicea was also the only church that Jesus did not mention any of its strength. Unlike the other six churches, this one was not offered any compliment at all. When Jesus, Jesus began his address to this church of Laodicea, his message was harsh. He said, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you are either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. This is one of the strongest words coming out from Jesus' mouth to a church. However, what Jesus said about the church of Laodicea is not as obvious as it appears. Jesus charged this church for being neither cold nor hot. So obviously, it's okay to be either cold or hot. So when Jesus described as lukewarm, it's not about the church enthusiasm or eagerness or commitment. If it's about these things, then we cannot imagine why it's better be cold than warm. In order to understand what Jesus is talking about, we need to understand the geographical context of Laodicea. Laodicea is located in the mid-level of a mountain range. There it is, Laodicea. At the top of the mountain range is a plateau known as Thailand of, of Hierapolis. The bottom of the range is the city of Colossae, which is probably we are more familiar with this one. This is a lowland. Um, also, we need to take note that the entire mountain range is run through by a river called Lycus River. So, at the top, the highland of Hierapolis. Uh, this is where the Lycus River begins, and it begins at a hot spring area. The highland of Hierapolis is a hot spring area, and we know that hot springs contain lots of minerals and are good for our bodies to build up immune system or even to cure certain health issues. As the river flows downstream, the rocks um, in the mountain range will function as water filters, which filter out all the minerals, or worse, the body dirt from the people who go into the hot spring. So when it reaches the bottom of the mountain in Colossae, the water is clean and drinkable, at least it seems to be, to be clean, but when the water reaches the middle of the mountain range in the city of Laodicea, it's neither hot, it's not hot, like the hot spring, no, it's not as hot as it, nor is cold. It's not as cold as the water in Colossae that you can drink. The water in Laodicea is like this. Would you drink this? So what would you do if you drank this? You would spit it out of your mouth. And that's what Jesus meant. The phrase, neither cold nor hot, actually means of no use. I cannot use it as hot spring. 
I cannot use it as drinking water. It cannot cure your, your, your illness, nor it can quench, quench your, your thirst. So why, in such privileged environment, did the church of Laodicea become no use for Jesus' kingdom? The reason is obvious. Jesus said it. He said, you say, the church says, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. And then Jesus said, but you do not realize that you, that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So after a while, life is settled. Abundance is achieved. Then comes complacency. And this is one of the most common symptoms of midlife crisis. No more vision. No more drive. No more enthusiasm. We might be doing a lot of things, but these things might not contribute much to the kingdom. As blessed as the church of Laodicea, they are not blessings to others. They have ceased to live, to live for Jesus. And then Jesus said he rather spit them out from his mouth. Church is not a place where we come and seek self-satisfaction. If we exist here just to care for ourselves, then we cease to be relevant and useful to God's kingdom. To be useful is not about to be outstanding in our own merit. To be useful is to be faithful. To bless others as we are blessed. To continue to be a channel of love and grace. To be a model of truth and endurance. And to be God's continuous workmanship. As we are putting the first 50 years behind us, may we at BCBC continue to examine ourselves so that we won't forsake our love, we won't forfeit our stand, and we won't lose our use to God's, to God's kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your, your characters, your holiness, your godliness, your goodness, all are beyond our wildest imagination. We give thanks to you for your revelation that you graciously revealed to us of who you are and how we can relate to you. We thank you for Jesus as we were all sinners, that he died in our place so, so that through his death and resurrection we can come back to you by faith. As our church continues to serve you in Vancouver and beyond, we ask that you will continue to bless us so that we can in turn Bless others. And as we do this, may your holy name be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.